Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll start with a review of Napoli's loss on the weekend to Sassuolo. Then in part two, we'll recap all the action from match day six. And in part 3, we'll preview Napoli's match on Thursday against HNK Rijeka. So let's start with the disappointing loss to Sassuolo on Sunday. We're underway then here at the San Paolo. It's Napoli against Sassuolo. Quick interchange, first touch passing. And taking risks. Risks have been taken in the opening 45 minutes, but none of them have really been punished. Goalers at the break at the San Paolo, not for the want of trying, the Azzurri in particular. It's as you were in terms of personnel for the start of this second period, which Maurizio Mariani gets underway. That's Raspadori, this is Jeremy Bogas surging through. Raspadori onto the loose ball and going to ground. Once again, the referee well placed to make the decision, or lack thereof, waving play on. Gattuso really wanted it. The whistle's gone. Now, presumably, because Raspadori was caught, and this could yet be a penalty for Sassuolo. Francesco Forno, the video assistant referee, has flagged something up to Maurizio Mariani. He's stopped play. He's coming across to have a look. And I think this is only going to end one way, with a Sassuolo spot kick. Penalty kick. Locatelli to give Sassuolo the lead. Which he does. But telling the referee to go and have another look at this. Rogerio, meantime, 
Maxime Lopez is forward. Is there to be a second for Sassuolo? Maxime Lopez doing it all himself. This is wonderful. And it's crept in. Sassuolo second. They have all three points. What a glorious way to open his account for the Nero Verdi. There is scope potentially for us to be talking about Sassuolo in the same breath as Atalanta in years to come. It looks a really good project. Flawless from De Zerbi, brilliant from Sassuolo. A night to forget for Napoli. As you heard, Napoli lost 2-0 on goals from Manuel Locatelli from the penalty spot and Maxime Lopez. This was our first loss in Serie A on the field and once again there's plenty to talk about. But as usual, let's start with the starting lineups. With a number of players out of the squad, Roberto De Zerbi lined up in a 4-3-3. Andrea Concili started in goal. Vlad Kiriches and Gianmarco Ferrari started at centre-back. We got both full-backs wrong. We were expecting to see Giorgos Kyriakopoulos at right-back and Mert Muldur at left-back. Instead, Khan Ihan started on the right and Rogerio started on the left. We had Maxime Lopez and Manuel Locatelli playing in the double pivot, but in the 4-3-3, Hamid Traore played in between them. And up top, Jeremy Boga started on the left and Gianluca Raspadori started at striker as we expected. We had Federico Ricci getting his first start at right wing, but Mert Muldur played there in place of the absent Berardi. Gennaro Gattuso went with the exact same squad that he used in the Atalanta match, which means we had only one discrepancy in our predicted starting 11. David Ospina started in goal. Elcid Kusai, Kaladu Koulibaly, Kostas Manolas, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started at the back, with Lorenzo Insigne not playing Koulibaly wore the captain's armband. Fabian Ruiz and Tiamui Bakayoko started in the double pivot, and that's the discrepancy we had. We had Diego Deme over Bakayoko. With Insigne out, Chucky Lozano started on the left. We knew Lozano didn't have the legs to play the full 90. I thought Elmas would replace Lozano, but even I overestimated how many minutes Elmas was going to play. Instead, Gattuso replaced Lozano with Petania and switched to the 4-4-2, which we've seen a couple times now when Osman and Petania play together. Matteo Politano started on the right wing, Dries Mertens started in the 10 spot, and Victor Osman started at striker. Elmas and Zielinski did eventually come on. Elmas played 20 minutes in place of Mertens, and Zielinski played 12 minutes in place of Politano. The only other change was Mario Rui came on for Elcid Kusai. So let's talk about the match. I saw a lot of fans on Twitter having meltdowns over the loss, questioning Gattuso and his formation and player selection. I saw people saying that Dries can't start anymore, Fabian isn't good enough in the midfield, Kusai should not be on the team at all. Now, I get that people were frustrated with his performance, and I know a lot of this comes from the heart. We have some of the most passionate fan bases on the planet. But for me, this was a gross overreaction to an early season loss. The way I see it, if we take one of the many scoring opportunities we had in the match, the complexion of this match changes completely and maybe the result is different. Victor Osman had a number of chances, he just couldn't seem to find the back of the goal. I don't know how Concili made that save early in the match after playing the ball straight to Osman. Dries Mertens missed a sitter in the second half after the classic Napoli run to the back post. The ball from Politano was excellent, that's a tough play to make, but one you would expect from a player of the caliber of Dries Mertens. To be honest, I'm more concerned about this mini-funk that Mertens is in than I am about Osimhen. Between the two yellows in the Europa League and the shirt pull at the end of this match, Osimhen appears frustrated, but this kid has a very strong head on his shoulders. Osimhen and Mertens had a host of other chances as well. By the way, the referee made the correct decision on that play at the end of the match. Osimhen and Marlon were pulling each other's jerseys. If you really want to be creative, you could say that 
the play should have been stopped when Manolas handled the ball because there was no advantage to be played. I don't know how he gets away with some of these fouls sometimes. At the end of the day though, that second goal didn't really matter, so we're better off that Manolas was not called for the foul because if he was, he would have been shown a straight red and he would have missed the next match against Bologna. The VAR also made the correct decision in awarding Sassuolo the penalty on the first goal. Di Lorenzo was clearly late on that tackle and he had a difficult night overall. Now, I do agree this was not Fabian's best performance, particularly in the second half. He lacks the pace and didn't create a whole lot. I'm willing to give him a pass on that though, and I know a lot of people are tired of it, but Fabian carried the bulk of the load with Zielinski and Elmas not in the lineup. He got the midweek match against Sociedad off, but otherwise he has played a lot. I think this would have been the perfect spot for Zielinski to start or at least come in earlier had he been fit to play, but we could see pretty clearly with both Zielinski and Elmas that they did not have a lot of minutes in them. This was something we did predict in our preview. Much like the match against Alkmaar, the second half of this match really highlighted how much Lorenzo Insigne means to this team, both for the creativity he provides with his movement and ball distribution, and for his ability to finish. Fortunately, it appears that Insigne's injury is not as serious as his previous one, so he could return to the team sooner rather than later. He probably misses the Bologna match and the international break, and then returns for the Milan match. Another player that gets a lot of hate is Elsie Kusai. His primary job is to defend and Napoli actually did that very well. The first goal was a penalty kick and on the second goal the team stopped playing, perhaps thinking the VAR would award a penalty. If there's anything Gattuso should and likely was upset about, it's the fact that his team completely stopped playing on that play. I know Kusai doesn't offer much in the attack, but if we're so dependent on our fullbacks to create chances, then I think we have bigger problems. Also, I think Rui is far more effective in the attack when he plays with Insigne. The other frustration for me was our continued inability to deliver a decent cross, whether from the corner kick, which we had 12 in this match, or from free kicks or even in open play. It seems our crosses are either straight into the keeper's gloves or they're overhit. We have the size now that we should be more dangerous in the air, especially on corner kicks when Manolas gets forward. The key standout players for us on this night were Kaladu Koulibaly and Tiemo Ibakayoko. Both of them were solid at the back and both are very cool customers. I've said this before, but I'm convinced that Koulibaly is the best on the planet at slide tackles, and the way he's playing at the moment, he's definitely among the best center backs on the planet, period. He even ventured forward and joined the attack on a few occasions. Now, as a Napoli fan, it's easy to focus on our own shortcomings and what went wrong, but I do think we also need to give the Zerbi and the Sassuolo side a ton of credit. They played really well despite not having Caputo, Berardi, and Juricic. Those three have combined to score 11 of Sassuolo's 16 goals heading into this match. Sassuolo created almost nothing in attack, but in a weird way, I think they also benefited from not having those players because it forced them to play a bit more compact. Surely if they were in the squad, Sassuolo get forward more, which then creates a lot more space for Lozano and Osimhen to run into, which is when they do the most damage as we saw in the Atalanta match. Sassuolo didn't simply sit back and defend, when they got the ball they managed to knock it around a bit and avoid Napoli's press. This was most effective in the final quarter of the match, you could clearly see that Napoli's heavy fixture list had caught up to us. Players like Politano and Fabian just didn't have the legs to press like we needed them to, and that I think skewed the possession numbers just a little bit. I thought a few individuals had excellent performances, including ex-Napoli player Vlad Kiriches at the back, youngster Maxime Lopez who was awarded with his first goal for Sassuolo, 
and Jeremy Boga, who looked very lively after being out for a while with COVID. I also thought that Zerbi made a few squad changes that worked really well. Rogerio made his first start at left back since the first round, and he created problems for Di Lorenzo all night, and Mert Muldur, who's typically a right back, played on the right wing. The last thing I'll say is this is not the end of the world, it's not even the end of the season. I went back to the point total since the 2004-2005 campaign, which is when Serie A expanded to 20 clubs. The average point total of the champions since then was just under 88. The maximum points a club can earn in a 38 game season is 114. That means on average, the champions drop 26 points. That's the equivalent of losing nearly 9 matches in a season. The highest point total during that period was in 2013-14 when Juve dropped only 12 points, but with the competition in Serie A this season, it should be much lower. If you look at last season's top 4, through 6 matches Juventus have already dropped 6 points, Inter have dropped 7, Atalanta 6, and Lazio 8. That's only our second loss in Serie A against a very good team who at the moment is second in the league. I obviously don't think they're going to be there at the end of the season, but I don't take too much shame in this loss. We certainly don't need to change formation because of it. We may change formation because the matchup with a specific opponent warrants it. We also don't need to get rid of players. Again, we may rotate because the matchup warrants it or because of the compressed schedule. It's a very long season assuming we get to the end of it. One of the nice things about playing so many matches in such a short period of time though is we don't have too much time to dwell on the poor performances. This week is no exception. On Thursday, we play against Rijeka in the Europa League. We'll preview that match in part three, but first we'll recap the rest of the action from the weekend. recap all the other action in match day 6, starting with Atalanta against Crotone. Atalanta got back into the win column after consecutive losses in Serie A and a draw in the Champions League. They beat Crotone 2-1 on a brace by Luis Muriel, while Simi scored for Crotone. Giampiero Gasperini started Johan Mojica for the injured Robin Gosens. He also started Ruslan Malinovsky over Josip Ilicic and Luis Muriel over Duvan Zapata. Muriel continues to be the most lethal backup striker in Serie A. He finds a way to get chance after chance and tested Crotone keeper Alex Cortez a few times before he got his goal. It was a goal befitting of a true number 9, in fact both of his goals were. On the first, Muriel received the pass with his back to the goal and turned all in one motion before firing past Cortez. 
Cordaz also had an up and down match. He made some big saves, but he also conceded possession cheaply with a pass up the middle that led to the second goal. Remo Freuler showed great anticipation to win possession on that play. He's proving to be a very important player for La Dea. They're much better with him in the lineup than without him. Freuler made a game-saving tackle in the second half after Johan Mojica played a pass back straight to Junior Macias. He had only the keeper to beat Macias, dribbled past Sportiello, unaware that Freuler was racing back, and just before Macias got the shot off, Freuler picked his pocket and the disaster was averted. Mojica has failed to impress, so wingback has become a bit of a concern for Atalanta with Timothy Castagna departing in the summer and now Gozins being hurt. At the break, Gasparini replaced Papu Gomez with Josip Ilicic and Muriel with Duvan Zapata, no doubt spreading the minutes ahead of their Champions League match midweek. The second half had a bit of a weird vibe to it. Atalanta weren't playing at their usual blistering pace, and you would have expected them to chase that third goal a bit harder. However, other than that one chance broken up by Freuler, Crotone never really posed a threat, but you did feel like Atalanta were only one mistake or lucky bounce away from dropping points again, but in the end they did not, and Crotone remain at one point now through six matches. Moving on, Parma held Inter to a 2-2 draw despite playing without seven players who had tested positive for COVID, including two cases that were confirmed on match day but were not named. Gervinho scored a brace for Parma, Marcelo Brozovic and Ivan Perisic scored for Inter. This match was played between two of the oldest clubs in Serie A, only Benevento have a higher average age. I feel like the first half of every Inter match is the same. Inter passed the ball around patiently, dominating possession, but don't actually create a whole lot. They had two chances in this half, one in the opening minutes of the half and the second in the closing minutes of the half. Both were crosses into the box, first from Barella to Perisic and then from Kolarov to Hakimi, and both resulted in misses from 6 or 7 yards out. Thankfully, Gervinho scored only 20 seconds into the second half, and what a goal it was. Surprisingly, that didn't seem to give Inter any motivation to score. It wasn't until Gervinho's second that Inter finally decided to wake up. That was another beautiful goal, more so for the play of Roberto Inglese and Juraj Kuchka before the goal. First, Inglese did really well to keep the ball in play at the touchline before playing it back to Kuchka. Then Kuchka nutmegged Vidal to return the ball to Inglese, and then Inglese's through ball was accurate and perfectly weighted for Gervinho to hit first time. Stefan de Vrij really struggled to keep up with Gervinho's pace. On both goals, Gervinho got in behind him. Inter finally woke up and poured it on after that. Brozovic scored Inter's first goal shortly after the second Gervinho goal with a lovely left-footed strike to the bottom corner. And shortly after that goal, Padma appeared to get away with one. Botan Balo appeared to have his arms draped around Perisic on an Inter cross, but even after a VAR review, the penalty wasn't given. That was followed by a huge Luigi Seppis save in the 72nd minute on Ranocchia's header from only 6 yards out. Liverani tried his best to defend the lead by replacing Gervinho with William Cyprian and Yasmin Kurtic with Simon Som to clog up the midfield and drop into a 5-4-1. Hakimi had a chance with an open header in front of the goal, but he had the ball straight into Seppis' arms. Inter did eventually score the equalizer in the final minute of normal time. Substitute Andrea Pinamonti did well to win a free kick in a dangerous area. Kolarov's cross was a good one. All it needed was a touch from Perisic to beat Seppe. So at the end of the day, both teams were probably disappointed with the result. Inter certainly went into this match expecting a win, while Parma blew a two-goal lead. But if you ask a Parma player or fan before the match how they would feel about a 2-2 draw at the San Siro, I think they'd be quite happy with that result. 
In the final match on Saturday, Bologna beat Cagliari 3-2. Cagliari made three one-touch passes in the build-up to the first goal. We talked about Luis Muriel being a lethal goal scorer. Jao Pedro is another lethal striker. After that goal, though, Bologna were the much better side. Alessio Cranio made two huge saves to protect the lead, but there was nothing he could do to stop Musa Barrow's shot just before the break. Barrow opened his account for this season with a powerful bending strike into the top corner. That goal came about a minute before the end of the first half. About a minute after the start of the second half, Giovanni Simeone put Cagliari back on top. It was a wild start to the second half, though within 10 minutes of Simeone restoring Cagliari's lead, Roberto Soriano and Musa Barrow both scored from long range to put Bologna on top. Bologna had an excellent second half. Skorupski was only called upon to make one save, though it was an important one. So Sinisa Mihailovic and his Bologna side now have two wins on the season. Milan extended their unbeaten streak to 24 games with a 2-1 win over Udinese to open the match day on Saturday. Gigio Donnarumma returned to action after being out due to COVID. I don't know if Milan found the cure to the virus because Milan only announced that Donnarumma and Haug tested positive a week before the match, but my understanding is that it was a false positive. Once again, Zlatan Ibrahimovic was the difference maker. He held the ball up before assisting Frank Hesse on the opening goal of the match. Then in the second half, he scored an acrobatic overhead kick that maybe wasn't as glamorous as some plays Ibra has made in his career, but this was still a very difficult play to make, let alone for a 39-year-old. Most players wouldn't even have the audacity or the creativity to try something like that. That was Ibra's seventh of the season to remain the top scorer in Serie A. Udinese scored their goal from the penalty spot. Just before the half, Udinese appealed for a penalty for a supposed foul by Ibrahimovic on Stefano Okaka, but it wasn't given. But Udinese did get their penalty shortly after the start of the second half. Rodrigo De Paul converted the shot to get his first of the season. Udinese went back to struggling to score though. They didn't score any goals in their first three matches, then they scored five in their last two, and in this one they only got the one from the penalty spot. Udinese probably should have had one on the counterattack in the 23rd minute, but Gerard Delofeo selfishly took the shot instead of squaring the ball or playing the return pass to Roberto Pereira. That shot completely missed the mark. Other than that, Udinese did not create a whole lot. So with the win, Milan remained at the top of the table. The close result should not have been unexpected. According to the broadcast, the last time either of these two teams won this fixture by more than one goal was back in December 2006 when Milan won 3-0. Lazio beat Torino in a high-scoring affair. Lazio got goals from Andreas Pereira, which was his first for Lazio, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic from a free kick, Chiro Immobile from the penalty spot, and Felipe Caicedo. Gleason Bremer, Andrea Bellotti, and Sasha Lukic scored for Torino. Milinkovic-Savic is one of those players that one night he can dominate a match and the next he can disappear. He was excellent in this one. He started the move on Lazio's first goal with a gorgeous long ball to Vedat Murici on the wing. The VAR later showed that Murici timed his run perfectly. He picked out Patrick at the back post who laid the ball off for Pereira at the penalty spot to complete this beautiful team goal. In the second half, Sergei scored the equalizer. Salvatore Sirigu probably should have done better on this goal. Last week, he made a huge error against Sassuolo, which ultimately cost Torino the win. On this play, he cheated to his left, expecting Sergei to go over the wall. So when he didn't, Sirigu had to come back to his right. And with how well the ball was hit, he just didn't have enough time to get back. If that wasn't bad enough, somehow Felipe Caicedo managed to beat Sirigu in added time through the keeper's legs for the winner. I thought there was some really poor defending in this match, specifically from Lazio. 
On the first goal, the usually very reliable Francesco Acerbi lost his man Bremer, who headed in the corner kick. Unfortunately for Torino, Bellotti fell pretty hard on his back, which ultimately forced him to leave the match, and it sounds like he could miss an entire month with this injury. He did stay on long enough though to win and convert a penalty, which was already his sixth goal of the season. He also should have had an assist early in the second half, but somehow Simone Verdi managed to hit the upright from inside six yards with a gaping goal staring at him. It's actually harder to miss that shot than it is to score it. And finally, Lazio conceded possession cheaply in their own end, which led to the Sasha Lukic goal. I think most people thought that that was the winner, but Lazio managed to score twice in the final few minutes of the match. I don't mean to suggest that Lazio shouldn't have won this match, but I do think they benefited from some poor officiating. Personally, I thought the foul on Joaquin Correa on the Milinkovic-Savic goal was a little soft. There was a little bit of contact, but for me, Correa went down way too easily. Then Luis Felipe appeared to foul Simone Verde in the box, and somehow the penalty wasn't given. And finally, I don't think Lazio should have been awarded a penalty at the end of the match. I don't think Nicholas Nkulu made his body unnaturally bigger. The interpretation of the handball rule was specifically changed to avoid penalty calls like this, and yet the penalty was given. Chiro Immobile scored that penalty against his former club. So Lazio recorded a huge come from behind win despite playing without some key players, and poor Torino, and especially poor Giampaolo, blew another lead in the final minutes for the second week in a row. Juventus beat Spezia 4-1, but it wasn't comfortable until the second half. Cristiano Ronaldo returned to the Juventus bench after a 19-day recovery from COVID, which he handled really poorly. Federico Chiesa also returned from his red card suspension. Juventus looked very good early in the match. They were moving the ball quickly. Weston McKennie had an excellent match. I'm still uncertain about him, though. He's had some really good performances and a few that he didn't contribute too much to. But if he can play like this on a consistent level, then I think he could be one of the best midfielders in the league. Alvaro Morata opened the scoring. He was initially called offside, which is nothing new for him, but for once, VAR awarded him a goal instead of taking it away. Even Andrea Pirlo could not help but smile after that decision, and McKenny got the assist on that one. But it wouldn't be a true Juventus match without having a goal taken away from Morata for offside, and he checked that box in the 23rd minute. But even though Spezia didn't have too many opportunities, they still managed to score. Tommaso Pobega shot deflected off Medi Demiral and beat Gigi Buffon. It seems Andrea Pirlo is still trying to figure out his system and his best 11. This Juve team should have no problem beating teams like Crotone, Verona, and Spezia, even without Cristiano Ronaldo, but Pirlo had to bring him in for this one, and he delivered. He scored only minutes after entering the pitch, and then later he scored a Panenka after what I thought was another soft penalty call this time on Federico Chiesa. Spezia are pretty awful too. Adrian Rabiot practically walked the ball into the goal to score Juve's third. Moving on, Roma beat Fiorentina 2-0 on goals from Leonardo Spinazzola and Pedro. Fiorentina actually looked really good in the opening 10 minutes of the match. They moved the ball quickly and pressed high, immediately putting Roma on the defensive. But Roma did well to withstand the early barrage and were rewarded with a somewhat fortunate goal. Somehow Mirante's clearance bounced for Spinazzola. He tried to find Pedro, but Cáceres got just enough on the pass to set up the shot and Spinazzola took it. And that was pretty much Roma's first sniff at the goal. Fiorentina could have done better on this play, the ball should have never gotten to Spinazzola in the first place, and Dragovski was far too deep in his goal. That goal really took the wind out of Fiorentina's sails, it was all Roma after that. Fiorentina were actually lucky this didn't become a blowout for a number of reasons. Pedro and Mkhitaryan both had chances come close but missed the goal. Dragovski made a couple of big saves in the first half, first on Dzeko's header, 
and then I double save on Karsdorp and Mkhitaryan. I thought Castrovili probably should have been shown a second yellow just before the break after getting his elbow up on Mkhitaryan. Sometimes referees make decisions based on the reaction of the players, or when we had fans based on the reaction of the fans. I think in this case, if Roma's players reacted more, he would have been shown a yellow. We've certainly seen players penalized for much softer fouls, especially some of these penalty calls in the box. Typically, those fouls come with a yellow. We saw Victor Osman get a yellow in the Europa League for a softer foul. Granted, the officiating is different in European competition than it is in domestic play. In the second half, Roma... Then in the second half, Roma made claims for a penalty after Pellegrini went down in the box. I typically don't want penalties given for that, but to me, the only thing worse than making bad calls is being inconsistent. This week alone, we saw some pretty soft penalties given. Pepe Iacchini tried to bolster Fiorentina's attack by replacing Bonaventura with Dusan Valovic and switching from the 3-5-2 to the 3-4-3, but that didn't work. Mkhitaryan still came close to scoring on a brilliant solo run in the 63rd minute. Then Iacchini replaced Jose Callejon with Christian Kuame, but still to no avail. Roma's three senior attackers in Dzeko, Mkhitaryan, and Pedro combined to score a beautiful team goal that started with Vertu springing the counterattack. That trio up top is looking very good for Roma. Finally, Cuarta was shown a straight red for a ridiculously dangerous tackle with his studs going straight into Jekyll's leg to the point where he put a hole in his sock. Fortunately, Jekyll was fine. I suspect that Cuarta will receive further punishment for that tackle. So like we do after just about every Fiorentina match, we ask ourselves, is this the week that Beppe Iacchini gets fired? The final match on Sunday was the Derby della Lanterna. I quickly got used to matches being played without fans, but even I think the derbies are just not meant to be played without fans. This was Ranieri's second match coaching for Sampdoria against Genoa. He's the only manager that's coached in the Milan, Rome, Turin, and Genoa derbies. Davide Biraski played his 100th game for Genoa. There was a bit of controversy on the first goal of this match. Goran Pandev appeared to be fouled moments before the goal, but play carried on. That said, the strike from Jakob Bianco was just stunning. Genoa responded well. Gianluca Scamacca scored the equalizer in his debut in Serie A this season. He's in fine form, having scored a brace in the Coppa Italia in midweek. He's currently on loan from Sassuolo. Scamacca is another player who's made the leap from Serie B to Serie A. He spent last season on loan at Ascoli, where he scored 9 goals, and he looks like a very promising young talent. He has all the qualities of a true number 9, including confidence and a little bit of attitude as well. The second half wasn't very entertaining. The ball spent most of the half in the middle third. Players were constantly going to ground, which really broke the rhythm of the match. Kita Balde looked really good again off the bench. Sampdoria were clearly the better side in the final quarter of the match and came close to scoring a winner. On one sequence, Mattia Perin pushed Balde's shot off the bar. The ball fell for Mikel Damsgaard, who really should have done better but completely missed the mark. Antonio Candreva played well off the bench as well, but at the end of the day, neither Candreva or Balde were able to make the difference, and this derby ended 1-1. The final match of the round was Verona against Benevento on Monday. Verona continued to prove the doubters like myself wrong, beating Benevento 3-1. Antonin Barak scored two beautiful goals. The first was a clever flick on a ball from Mattia Zaccagni, who made an excellent run on the wing. Then he scored a gorgeous shot to the top corner with the outside of his boot. Zaccagni played well. He nearly scored on a cross, but Montipo managed to push the ball over the bar. Marco Silvestri came up big when Verona needed him to. He made a couple of big saves on Roberto Insigne, including once 1v1 early in the first half. He also made a nice save on a long-distance shot from Gianluca Caprari that he saw late. 
Gianluca Lapadula continues to play well. He scored the equalizer early in the second half. Then with Verona up 2-1, there was a bit of controversy. Caprari appeared to be fouled in the box. It didn't appear that the VAR reviewed the play, or at least the official didn't take a look for himself. Again, we saw some pretty soft calls this weekend like in the Juventus match, so consistency is really becoming an issue here. Assuming Benevento would have converted that penalty, the score would have been 2-2. Caprari was clearly unhappy about the decision and must have said something to the fourth official because the referee ran over to Caprari at the sidelines and showed him a straight red. Only moments after that, Darko Lazovic scored Verona's third and put this match away. So that's our preview of match day 6. In part 3, we'll preview Napoli's match in the Europa League on Thursday against Rijeka. Close the pod with a short preview of Napoli's Europa League match on Thursday against HNK Rijeka. Let's start with a little bit about Rijeka because I'm sure most of our listeners don't know much about them. They play in the Croatian top flight called the Hrvatski Telekom Perva Liga. Despite being a relatively small league consisting of only 10 clubs, the winner of the league qualifies for the group stage of the Champions League. That's usually Dinamo Zagreb. The second place team qualifies for the qualification round of the Champions League which last season was Lokomotiva Zagreb. The third and fourth place teams qualify for the third qualification round of the Europa League. Rijeka finished only one point back of third last season, so they narrowly missed Champions League qualification. Rijeka defeated Ukrainian club Kolos Kovalivka 2-0 in added time to advance to the playoff, where they beat Copenhagen 1-0. On paper and so far in practice, Rijeka appeared to be the weakest side in Group F, They lost their first match in the group 1-0 to Real Sociedad, and they lost their second match 4-1 to Alkmaar. Rijeka are currently in 4th place in the Croatian league with a record of 4 wins, no draws, and 3 losses. Their top scorer is attacking midfielder Franko Andriasevic, who already has 3 goals in 3 appearances, which is pretty impressive considering he only scored 5 goals in 26 appearances last season. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. I'll be honest, I didn't spend much time trying to figure out Rijeka's starting 11. It's hard enough to figure out who plays where on a normal day, let alone during the pandemic. On Monday, Rijeka's coach Simon Rosman said, We live in a difficult time due to the coronavirus. Every three hours, the players measure the temperature. Every three hours, I have a different group to manage. I hope to have 12 players available for the match against Napoli. Otherwise, we will play with the young players. So what I'll do is simply walk you through the players who played in their previous Europa League matches, not knowing which ones may or may not have contracted coronavirus since then. Rosman lines up in a 5-4-1 formation with Ivan Nevistic in goal. The three centre-backs are usually Joao Escoval, Darko Valkovsky, and Jose Smolcic. 
The left back is Daniel Stafoul, and the right back is Ivan Tomasak. The two center midfielders are Franco Andriesevich and Domagaj Pavicic. Pavicic played over Adam Nezda Serin, who played against Real Sociedad, but was not in the lineup against Alkmaar, so perhaps he is one of the players that tested positive. Stepan Lonsar plays on the left wing, and with Pavicic playing in the midfield, Luka Manalo played on the right wing. Finally, the striker is Sandro Kulenovic. He's currently on loan from Dinamo Zagreb. For Napoli, I think we're going to see quite a few backups start in this one lined up in a 4-3-3. Alex Meret should get the start in goal. At center back, I've seen some rumors that Amir Rachmani could make his first appearance. That actually makes sense to me, as I think Kaldu Koulibaly will finally get a day off. Also, Gattuso does not seem to want Kostas Manolas to play more than once a week, which would suggest that Rachmani and Nikola Maksimovic start in the middle. Like against Real Sociedad, I think we'll see Mario Rui at left back and Elcid Kusai at right back. In the midfield, I think we'll see a more natural combination than the one we saw against Sociedad. I think we'll see Diego Deme and Stanislav Lobotka play as the holding midfielders, with Piotr Zielinski getting his first start since recovering from coronavirus. Up top, I don't think Lorenzo Insigne will be ready for this match, so I think we'll see Elif Elmas give Chucky Lozano a break on the left wing, and Matteo Politano seems like the only option to me on the right wing. Finally, with Victor Osman on a red card, Andrea Petania will get another start at striker. The match official is Matias Gestranius. His linesmen are Jan Petr Aravita and Miko Alakar, and the fourth official is Yoni Hitier. For my prediction, I'll give Napoli a 3 0 win on a brace from Petania and the other by Politano. That may seem like a high goal tally for a Napoli team that has really struggled to score against opposition who sit back and crowd the midfield. We saw that against Alkmaar, a team that was ravished by COVID and Napoli were expected to beat with ease. We saw it somewhat against Sassuolo as well, but I think it's very important that Gattuso shows we can break down that wall, otherwise our opponents will quickly adapt to this approach in the defensive phase. I think Zielinski will provide much more balance in the midfield. Against Sociedad, we played Lobotka out of position as an attacking midfielder because we didn't have much choice. Zielinski is far more comfortable in that role, he plays more vertically than Fabian does, and while he may not be as creative, I think his movement alone will stretch the Rijeka back line. He provides a much better link between the holding mids and the defenders, and the attack. So that's our preview of Napoli vs Rijeka, I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode, if you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and give us a 5 star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5. Or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at ForzaNapoliPod. We'll talk to you again after the match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli Sempre.
Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.